Hello, everyone, and welcome to season six of The View from Venus. My name is Mary Churchill, and on today's episode, I am joined by my lovely co-host, Meg Palladino, and guest expert, Lisa Wolf-Wendell, professor of higher education and associate dean for research and graduate studies in the School of Education at the University of Kansas. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Lisa about equity issues in higher education and dual career couple accommodations that institutions have made. Today's question is, what superpower would you give your best friend? I was thinking about this and I think I'd go with super strength maybe because then they could help me with all kinds of things or super speed so they could like paint my house really fast. Yeah, I'd like them. See, my best friends are uh, folks from when I was, when I when I grew up in Alaska. And so they're still, they're very far away. So I would like them to teleport or fly to me or be there so I could see them more often because we have stayed friends since we were very, very young and I love them, but I don't get to see them very often because that's a good one. So teleport. Good answer. Well, I like that one too. <laughs> I think that this is like, obviously I'm hungry right now. I would like them to be really good cooks. <laughs> I'm thinking like, it would be great if they could make me these amazing meals. <laughs> Right. To, and that they like to cook too, right? Like that it was not a chore, that it was fun and it was a good hobby and that they were really good at it. So I think that would be the superpower I would want my friends to have. So you could be the super taster and they could be the super I could power. be the super taster. I, that's, that's the power that I think I already have that power. <laughs> so Lisa, your scholarship is fascinating. I reached out to you to be on the podcast because I saw some of your work and I was like, oh, we need to have her on View from Venus. So many, many things, but your scholarship has focused on equity issues in higher ed. As we are two plus years into the global pandemic, what are what you see as top challenges and opportunities for women in higher ed right now? Yeah. So, you know, COVID was, was tough for everybody, still is tough for everybody. But as we know, it was particularly vexing, troubling for uh, anyone who had primary caregiving responsibilities, whether that was taking care of children or taking care of parents or both. And our gender roles are such that that actually still hit women harder than it hit men. But it's not that men don't have caregiving responsibilities, but if you put the primary one there, you know, we read newspaper article after newspaper article and blog after blog and podcast after podcast and research article after research article that really talked about the way that COVID hit women in particular across professions and across fields. Many women ended up leaving their jobs, not necessarily in academia, but uh, uh, certainly in, in, in staff positions in academia. Having to take care of and educate you know, it was, it's not just for little kids once they got to five and then you send them off to school and you could do your job. We had to, women, primary caregivers had to take care of school-age kids, high school kids, college kids, all, all living in their house and all. And folks who didn't have primary care responsibilities, many of them were super productive during COVID. I have colleagues, I know of colleagues that cranked out 
article after article or book after book and and just were super productive. Whereas I, most of the, the mothers I know, out of necessity, were balancing so many things, so many other people's lives and responsibilities that they actually ground to a halt in terms of scholarship. And that exacerbated the, the, the differences and any gains that we might have, have made up to that point. And a lot of institutions, of course, stopped tenure clocks or, or gave people extra time or didn't, you know, but what happened is you have cumulative disadvantage. So you have folks who sped ahead because they didn't have responsibilities and they got a bunch done. And then folks who were completely stalled and didn't get lived. I mean, they got a lot done. Please don't, don't get me wrong. They were very productive. They were just not productive in the things that count in academia. And so if we take an, uh, an assistant professor as an example, who has to stop the tenure clock, stop the tenure clock because you weren't, didn't get done what you quote unquote needed to get done. Well, that uh, women were, were more likely to, to, to stop the clock because of COVID, but they weren't getting things done. And then over time, then, then they're gonna make less money because they go up later. And then that is going to, to continue to accumulate. Further, we had the whole, uh, what was once private is now public. <laughs> My know, favorite had, part of COVID. <laughs> right? We had people who were working from home, Zooming from home with every, you know, some people without a lot of space to do that. So sitting in their, in their closets or sitting in their living rooms or sitting with, if they had primary care responsibilities, cameo appearances of various and sundry dogs, cats, children, grandparents, spouses, partners, whoever. So we got to see, we got to, it's nice in some ways, we got to see the inside of people's lives, but it was a, it was a kind of an invasion of privacy for a lot of people. Uh, they didn't necessarily want everyone to know all their business, but they didn't have any options there. As you know, academia, we tend to not be able to work where we grew up. We have to go far away. And so we often don't have family members necessarily nearby to help pick up the slack. That was harder also during COVID because you couldn't call on parents, even if they were, or relatives, even if they were there. But a lot of us, a lot of folks in academia have set up chosen families to help us with managing all of the responsibilities that we have and certainly during the height of COVID, you couldn't even call on your chosen family. Yeah. So you were in it alone. I, I We interviewed folks who were um, in, who were either single parents or who were in different kinds of relationships, not just sort of heterosexual married relationships. We, we did this, we didn't intend to do this study as part of COVID. We intended to sort of say, there, there, so there's a lot of research, some of which I have added to about how cisgender women, mostly white women, manage work and family on the tenure track, right? So yeah. we thought it would, colleague of mine thought it would be really helpful to expand that narrative and look at folks who were in gay and lesbian relationships or who were single parents or who had other family sort of formations to see how gender played out, those kinds of things. Well, we scheduled our very first interview for March 13th. <laughs> and uh, what well, we didn't know, I mean, and so uh, the person actually carried through on the interview and just spent the whole time crying 
And we're like, okay, I think we've ruined some human subject policy. <laughs> anyway, we 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 didn't. We but we went back to human subjects and we said, hey, we'd like to to modify this. And we ended up interviewing people. We changing the protocol a bit and talking about how they were navigating work and family. And so we had this broader group of people that we were able to interview. But what was interesting is that people didn't talk about gender roles all that much. They just talked about surviving. Yes. It was such a fire, I mean, a fire hose that it's, there's the, the space and distance to kind of analyze it while you're in it was just, there's no way. Exactly. So, but, but it was really interesting, you know, in, in talking to single parents in particular, people were saying, you know, I, I can't, I, if I get sick, there's no one to take care of my children. I'm it. So I, they, they were hyper cautious about you know, not going out and not exposing themselves. And plus their kids, or many of them, they were quite young kids and they didn't have access to vaccines or anything like that. So what one woman who we interviewed was doing Zoom department meetings and it was now, I think, July or August of 2020. And one was talking about all their home projects they were doing. And, oh, I've remodeled this and I'm doing this. And oh, blah, blah, blah. And she, she, she said, I am not okay. I have not, I have two twin three-year-olds and I've not left my house and I cannot leave my house. And you're all acting as if this has been a vacation and it's not a vacation. And I, it was really, I mean, she really let, letting the private become public and she really sort of told her department and that they set up a food train and a, something else for a little while and whatever. But I, I think that they just didn't understand what that was like for her. And that's a particular case, but I think it's not all that particular. For well, many I'm finding as we come back to that, the women who the single moms are struggling the most socially, right? They ha were socially isolated from other adults and their, their re-entry right now is very different than people who were in a two or three adult household, right? A multi-adult household. And you can tell that it's been rough not just, you know, kind of the, this adult isolation piece has really been challenging for them. They're oh, the I, less more likely to kind of hang out in offices and kind of wander the halls. And we're seeing, I'm definitely seeing that in a like kind of strong empathy way, like, wow, this person has not had adult interaction in a long time. So Yeah, no, I, I would, from the folks we interviewed, I would, I would say that that is, that is the case. And the other thing is, so, so there's the the sort of people got behind and people were just doing the best they could and people's what that looked like played out really differently. But all of the all of the gendered norms about second shift sort of time seven, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which became really, really difficult. I want to slip in another question. <laughs> so you've also focused on institutional responses related to dual career couple accommodations. Mm -hmm. Can you share some of your thoughts on this with our listeners? Yeah, so a uh, dual career couple accommodations, it's, it's as, as anyone who is in a dual career couple knows, it's, it's tough to find two jobs in the, in the same space. And, but, but very important for, for many folks. Although I actually have studied and know lots of, of folks who have, uh, commuter relationships. In fact, I was just talking to a colleague of mine whose husband is a professor in Florida and she's a professor at Kansas and their whole marriage, they have not lived in the same place. They've raised kids, they've done whatever. They just make good use of sabbaticals and long weekends and teaching schedules, et cetera. But for many people, actually, they would, they would like to live in the, in, in commuting, just area and 
close proximity to one another. Institutions, so I, I, I studied this quite early on. So our original studies, I think, came out in, in the year 2000, and we were really focused on institutional policies that would assist people in these accommodations. We sort of found that there were sort of five different models that institutions used. The Holy Grail one was, of course, the creation of a tenure track line. Uh, and many institutions, particularly large research universities, have policies that when it works for the institution, they will fund the line. And usually it's some combination of the initial hiring department will ante up a third of the line, the provost office will ante up a third of the line, and the accompanying spouse or partner's department will ante up a third of the line. And sometimes, so that will create a new one where there wasn't one before. And so it's a win happens, for the department that hires because it's a they only pay a third and they get out a faculty line that they weren't even lobbying for. That, yeah. Correct. But it has to, all stars must align in order for that to happen, right? So it's a, and sometimes those are loans, meaning you're borrowing on a line where it's a, that's a future retirement. So the one third, one third, one third is for just three years or five years or two years. Sometimes that's actually a permanent rescission from budget. Like the journalism loses <laughs> one third of a line to go pay for the a line for someone in economics or whatever. So, so you know, it, it's really only a game that large research universities can play because they have sort of the fun, enough funding to be able to create such a thing. So there's that there, there's that model. We don't use, by the way, trailing spouse. We use a company spouse or partner. Uh, that's because the the person who is coming along often and often the person who's coming along could be a senior person could be you know it's, it's hard to say right so yeah. you want to treat the accompanying person respectfully <laughs> so so there's that that's one model at small private colleges they've done where two people will share could share a position so uh with you know maybe someone taking on some administrative role or a little bit of grant funding to help but but basically two people in the same field who who write a letter saying we're both applying for this one job hire us both and, and we'll split uh, it and we'll split it and uh, so i we saw that work mostly in like little small colleges and like a, a, a and more isolated spaces and people were willing to sort of you know for oftentimes they had young children that hand the baby off here you, your turn and people would sort of work their way into either making it two full-time positions eventually or again taking you know grant funding themselves into so it wasn't just one salary right so we, saw, we saw some of that yeah we saw um what happens a lot in, in boston uh, which is what are called herps higher education resource consortiums research consortiums i think h-e-r-c's herps are where in a region of the country institutions will co-list job opportunities so you'll have opportunities at bu and bc and oh, and emerson and harvard and whatever and so then a couple who's looking for jobs and similar you know will, can look okay i'm going to interview here and then let's look at there's other jobs here that are in my area and people use the herc the hercs are still active actually and yep, i'm on the listserv for the herc here yeah there you go so 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 there's what there's a herc in New England, there's a Boston Herc, there's a LA Herc, there's a et cetera. So they're often they're done by regions of the country and they're pretty active and I think pretty helpful. Uh, some institutions are in consortiums. 
consortia where they'll co-list jobs. So if you're in the Mount Holyoke, UMass, yeah, the, the, five, Sarah, yeah, the, five, the five colleges, or the Claremont colleges, or the Kenyon Five, or the whatever. So you'll co-list. You don't have a lot of sway necessarily in talking together institutions into hiring someone they don't want to hire someone to hire, yeah. but it is a nice way of sort of particularly for you know for places to cooperate, particularly if they're a little bit more remote. That is a, an option. And then the other I, option which happens a lot is that you hire people in a non-tenure track position, either non-tenure track teaching or an or an administrative position and uh they you kind of hope that eventually the line turns and becomes what people hope it will be which doesn't always happen and people end up potentially mobile because they that's the one i'm most common with the the one person kind of comes in and often at a senior level right and then the accompanying spouse is either given an administrative position or and it can be high level administrative position or a instructor slash lecturer kind of full-time teaching position. Yeah. yeah. See, see, that's, see, that's interesting when it happens senior because with an administrator, because I think there is some assumption that the administrator is not going to be there forever. So if you hire a dean and then the and then you arrange for a, a, a position for the spouse or partner, you know, there's some assumption that that there'll be some, you know, in five years they'll be gone and we won't have to worry about it. Now, that doesn't always happen. I mean, but right. obviously people can stay. And But so institutions are quicker to actually do that than they are when they're hiring just a rank and file tenure track person and then to find an accompanying, a, 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 a position for their accompanying spouse or partner because they don't have a lot of power. I mean, so one of the dynamics that comes to play here and that you have to ask is, what's the academic labor market in the field like? And we've had so many years now where the institution can have what they want. They don't have to make accommodations. They don't have to. There are so many people who have degrees in English and not enough English faculty positions. So it's hard to bargain unless right. you're more senior. So if you're a junior assistant professor, your bargaining chip is it's not going to take you, it's not going to get you very far. There was a long period of time where, where dual career couple hiring policies were big in the Midwest because perhaps because, because large universities in the Midwest are more isolated yeah. and they weren't as popular in Boston and San Francisco and LA and whatever. And before, right before the pandemic, actually, I was asked to come in and do some consulting in the Boston area because people were saying, we really need to do this. And then things sort of got a little weird. But so it's interesting. I thought I, I thought maybe we were seeing a little shift and then I, I don't know what will happen on on down the line. The, I want to say one other thing. The other, it's not really an accommodation, but some institutions have created a staff person or an office that will help the accompanying spouse or partner find a position, oftentimes not in academia or in an administrative, like a, a fine advisor, but help people transition to new communities so help people find jobs as teachers or lawyers or accountants or other kinds of non-academic so so sort of a career counselor relocation um, services the relocation services and Very and cool. those were pretty pretty effective you know you they, they would either be housed in the 
provost's office, or they would be housed in a career center. And the person was had a, a background in career counseling and sort of let me help you relocate to this area and find a job. And they are less helpful in finding academic jobs, but they were really connected to the, the region or the industries and could could make connections to people to people. So those are those were those are helpful positions and I think a lot of advanced NSF advanced grants created offices. Oh, that, interesting. That, I'm gonna yeah. look into that. That is fascinating. Well, so I would say that so my whole interest in dual career couples stemmed from an initial study that I had done with my advisor, Daryl Smith, about the academic labor market for people of color. And it was in the night no or, you know, late nineties that we sort of did this and and someone said, Well, we were interviewing people who, people of color who got faculty jobs and what made you choose the place you did and was there a bidding war? And we were asking all these questions and and many of them said, well, I was a, a part of, they uh, they tried to, they offered to find my spouse or partner a position. So it was dual career couple hiring policy. And that's how I got interested in the topic in the first place. We try to do these like quick takeaways. I think mine is really, the complexity of this dual hiring, right? Like there's so much opportunity there. And so this dual career couple, I do think the opportunity for making those demands and and kind of getting the institution to, to shift the way it sees things for the better of all of us, right? You know, so you really got me thinking about that. So thank you. Lisa, thank you so much. That was a blast. Listeners, as always, thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with Vicki Baker from Albion College in Albion, Michigan. Thank you for listening.